breathable, lightweight, dependable. These are adjectives that are never said about mouthguards until now. Sisu mouthguards, the best mouthguards on the market. Listen, people, I wish we lived in a world where we could play high-impact sports and have no consequences to concussions, to teeth trauma, but that's just not the reality. So you need to get a Sisu mouthguard. They're the best, Gumby. The best. Yeah, and they protect your chompers uh, when you take one to the teeth. You know, you always roll with that guy who flails around, sticks his knee in your face and whatnot. Not with uh, Sisu mouthguard. So go to sisuguard.com and get yourself a Sisu mouthguard. Sisu mouthguard brings you episode 17 of Top Turtle MMA. We are rolling. This is David Tremonti. I am joined by Daniel Gumby Reeland, the co-editor of MMAManifesto.com, and this is Top Turtle MMA Podcast, episode 17. I can't believe we made it 17 episodes, Gumby. Yeah, 17, rolling deep, and uh, we might have our best guest yet for episode 17. That is correct. We have the man who started it all, Art Davey, the original uh, co-founder, owner, of the UFC. Yeah, and uh, I mean, he is, he almost shocked me with the interview how in-depth he is with up to modern MMA. Like, he still follows it really closely. He still has business insights. He still has opinions on the game. It's not something he just walked away from when he sold it. Uh, he's yeah, he still very into it. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. He didn't become that bitter ex-owner. Yeah, yeah, and he's not one guy who just, like, you know, watches the occasional main event. This is a guy who knows his his shit, for for real. Um, so, as I mentioned, this is Top Turtle MMA. We so appreciate the download, or however it is you get us in your eardrums. We, of course, can be found on TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, basically anywhere a podcast is being streamed and of course we must give a shout out to the mothership mma-manifesto.com click on over uh, head on over and click on the podcast tab that's where we live gumby of course is the co-editor of mma-manifesto.com and Go ahead. And you can get us on Twitter. Uh, you can get me at Gumby Vreeland, and you can get the show at Top Turtle MMA. You can also email us at Top Turtle MMA at gmail.com. All right. So now that the worst part of doing a podcast is out of the way, the plugs, the blah, 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 this is how you get in touch with us. Thanks for listening. Although I do very much appreciate you listening. Let's talk about the news, Gumby. Yeah, and, and this was kind of uh, one of those slower weeks, for sure. Uh, nothing. There's, like, nothing. Yeah, not a, not a whole lot of stuff happening. There, here, here's the big thing, I guess, for me, is that Connor continues to talk shit on uh, various social media platforms, and it's, like, very manipulative, trying to coax his fan base into bothering the UFC. Like, he had one tweet, which was, like, cut the shit UFC Give pe- give the people the fight they want, which I can't listen. I'm a Connor fan. I have to take exception to that. Didn't really want the fight. Yeah, and that's that's actually what I was gonna say too. Is like, I, I think he expects all of these people to rally behind him and be like, "Yeah, we want to see him fight Nate Diaz again." But really, all the fans didn't want to see him fight him in the first place. You know, we all wanted to see him defend his belt. You know, as a fan of Conor McGregor, I wanted to see him defend his belt. I didn't want to see him go for two or three division championships. I wanted to see him go right down and defend his belt, and let's see if he's really the best 145-er, because I thought he was going to prove to us that he was. And, uh, and it, sorry to cut you off, it was just such a decisive win, too. I mean, Diaz uh, really outboxed him, out-cardioed him, I, you could even say, despite being on a beach 11 days prior doing shots in Mexico, and uh, and then submitted him, which we all know has kind of been, you know, a Achilles heel for Connor. Well, I won't go so far as to say an Achilles heel, but something we knew wasn't tested. It was a very definitive win for Nate Diaz, a very definitive loss for Connor. And I would have been fine. I, you know, I think Joe Rogan brought this up, and it was such a great point, which is sometimes you need to just see someone come off a win to really get excited about a certain fight. I'm paraphrasing here, but I would have been so fine with if Connor just went back, defended his featherweight title once, got a win under his belt, and we come back to Nate Diaz too one year later to just immediately have to rewatch a fight that ended decisively in the second round. No, Connor, I wasn't excited about the rematch. And and on top of that too, is what I think he's forgetting too. And this is maybe what makes this whole shenanigan with the, the press and stuff all that much worse is that what he's forgetting is the UFC was doing him a favor by letting him fight that one again. Right. You know, that one was like we said, was not one that got fans super excited. Uh, you know, 
the title fight between him and, and Frankie Edgar would probably sell just as good, if not better. Um, you know, and, and on UFC 200, it's going to do fine anyway. So they were doing him a favor, letting him have that fight. So when he doesn't show up to that, why would they feel like they still need to do him a favor? I don't think any amount of whining is going to get him there at this point. And then the other thing where now I feel like he's just trolling or it's like an attempt to keep his name in the in the spotlight or just playing the pro wrestling heel, if you will. If you saw this latest one, it's like, here's a photo of me working on the rear hand uppercut, uh, something I worked prior to UFC 196. Um who else can call a shot like the rear hand uppercut on a big six foot lurch and then go out and dig that baby repeatedly into the nose? Anyone didn't think so. Mark my fucking words. I'm going to toy with him in the rematch. Believe that. I mean, that, this is like shit talking to try to get his fan base riled up yeah. and also to get Nate Diaz's fan base I, riled up. I'm not up. sure he's getting either of them round, riled up, though. That's the craziest part of it is, is I'm not I, I don't read it and get jacked up anymore. As as the dust settles on this, I actually like at the beginning, I was kind of on Connor's side. Like, yeah, he does do a lot of media. This does seem unfair. And then you hear people like Misha Tate come out and very um you know level-headed say hey we have a clause in our contract reasonable media this was three months before the fight it was pretty reasonable, pretty reasonable. jose aldo's flying in from brazil jj's flying in I, from poland i, th- I think the peep part that uh connor objected to although he hasn't said it publicly um you know he said he was in iceland who do you know trains in iceland gunner nelson gunner nelson who's fighting this weekend uh, gunner, gunner nelson. nelson so this was more of a ploy for gunner i think than anything else. I mean, he blew Connor off that, is a loyal guy. It, he is a super loyal guy. I think he blew off the media appearance for Gunnar Nelson and to get him ready um, with his big match with Tumanoff, which we'll preview a little bit later. Uh, and, and I don't think he's come out and said that because he doesn't want to blame Gunnar Nelson for it, but it, it feels more like that. Still, you're, you're 100% right. It yeah. is a reasonable media request. It's a good hypothesis, too. I never even thought of that. And I'll also say on that front, uh, Gunnar Nelson recently came out this week and said that he doesn't believe Connor ever wants to do the cut to 145 again. Or I might be – I don't want to get that quote wrong, but he – Something uh, along those lines. He eventually – yeah, I think what he was saying was it's a beast of a cut. It well, sucks. Well, of course it is a beast of a cut. But that's what made him a beast at 145 is because he's bigger than other people. He's quicker than other people. And, and don't get me wrong, yeah, 170 pounds, I'm sure it was much better at 170. Actually, I mean, who I, would want to lose that much weight? And actually, fact, he did say, I don't, quote, I don't think Connor wants to cut to 145 yeah, yeah, again. It's, it's not surprising. I mean, like like I said, if you weigh 175 pounds, and you I do weigh 175 yeah, pounds. Yeah, okay, so Dave over here weighs 175 pounds. I tell him he's got the choice of fighting at 170. Or 145, and it's not even a question, right? I like, mean, well, I well to be honest with you, I would just take 155 all day. Yeah, I just it, I would, but if you told me 145, I would you know roll my eyes and want to kill myself. Yeah, and I, I you know so just so the the people at home know, I, I walk around at 205 pounds. I cut one, no, I I take that back. I cut twice down to 179 pounds for some jujitsu tournaments and it was miserable it was some of the most uncomfortable i've ever been you can talk to any member of my family you want you can tell them they'll tell you how miserable i was and how angry i was all the time so i i mean his weight cut has got to be more than that he's definitely got less flab on him than me um so i i can't imagine that feels too good for him now agreed um and then here's the really, I mean, God, again, such a boring week. Um, but the only other thing was there was a rumor on a certain message board that I frequent um, where Tim Kennedy said that he has a fight lined up finally after two years off. I know you're not the biggest Tim Kennedy in the ring fan, in the cage fan, but he said it, um, it was one of his biggest of his career apparently. And I was going through the top middleweights, and I'm like, wait a minute. How could this be the biggest of his career? Anderson, booked. Jacare, booked. You know, Weidman, I, booked. I think I know where you're going. This. Yeah. Yoel, right? A rematch of Stoolgate. I, I, I got to imagine it's Yoel, too. If it, but then again, remember, Kat Zingano told us our jaws would drop. And who'd she wind up who, – who's she fighting – um, it was so unforgettable. Oh, it was uh, the girl Juliana Pena. Juliana Pena, yeah, that, and that's like jaw dropping. So right. he could no. be like, "This is the biggest fight of my career, Robert Whitaker." Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like, that's right. Oh. <laughs> um, Not that I don't enjoy Robert Whitaker, but like, if if he tells me it's the biggest of his career and he says Robert Whitaker, I'm gonna be like, "Huh, 
huh. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of nice. Yeah, Robert Robert Whitaker. <laughs> um, all right. So, listen, it was a slow news week, and maybe we needed that in the MMA world because things were pretty crazy there for the three weeks prior. Freaking nuts. And <laughs> what's awesome about the rest of our episode is we got to talk to the original UFC owner and then get to break down a pretty kick-ass freaking card yeah, for this. highly underrated. Highly. This weekend in Rotterdam. So, with that being said, we will cut right to our interview with Art Davey. This interview is brought to you by New England Submission Fighting. New England Submission Fighting, a mixed martial arts gym in the lovely, picturesque, and quaint college town of Amherst, Massachusetts that's located on the western half of the state. Classes six days a week, stand-up striking, no gi jiu-jitsu, which is the specialty, gi jiu-jitsu. If you are in or around the Western Mass area, come on down to New England Submission Fighting. Tell them Dave and Gumby sent you. You'll be greeted with a hug, a smile, and a choke. You can check out the website, AmherstMMA.com. New England Submission Fighting brings you our interview with Art Davey. This is Daniel Gumby Vreeland here with my co-host Dave Tremonte, and we are lucky enough to sit down today with the founder of the UFC, Art Davies. He's also the author of Is This Legal, which is the story of the beginning of the UFC. It is uh, available on Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, and the UFC store itself. Um, Art, we'll, we'll jump right into the questions here. So, um, you know, obviously the book does a really great job of telling about how everything came into play and how the popularity started coming around. But was there a point after you had kind of, you know, put your stamp on it and moved away a little bit where you thought, wow, this is, is certainly become a much larger thing than I thought it was going to be? Well, I talk about it in the book that we, all of us, felt in the beginning that this was going to be huge. This was never conceived as a one-shot. We, we always felt it was a franchise. And, you know, it wasn't, didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this had become huge back in the ancient Greek Olympics as pancreation. So, you know, all we were doing was bringing back the glory of ancient Greece and bringing it to the modern world in a, in a, in a package that uh, everybody could relate to, pay-per-view. So as it's grown, I haven't been shocked. and I don't think that uh, a lot of the others who were close with me on the action uh, at Center for Entertainment and WOW Promotions have been surprised. Um, we always felt that it would be international, as big as soccer worldwide, because the martial arts are everywhere. So I'm pleased about that. It's really a thrill to see that uh, I've got MMA fans in Afghanistan, in, in Norway, in Thailand, the home of Muay Thai, or in Argentina. So uh, I'm, the other night I'm talking to a young woman who's a gym instructor and training in MMA in Istanbul, Turkey. You can't beat that. That's that's awesome. So I, I love the quote in there too. We were just bringing back the glory days of Rome, which is it sounds so simple. Um, uh, so in that vision, obviously, you said that you expected it to can, to get as huge as it is now. Um, do you can expect that the with the guidance that it's currently under with with Dana White and the Fertitas that it's going to continue to get bigger? And if so, just how big can this be? That's a good question. I think that uh, the Fertitas uh, have done a great job. They've spent a lot of money. They brought it into the mainstream to broadcast TV with the seven-year deal with Fox. And I think that um, that internationally it can only get bigger. Um, you know, the funny story is, though, that when you think about it, at one time, you know, uh, you know, Univac dominated the computer, business computer universe, and then along came IBM and later Apple and so many others. Things can change. Uh, it wouldn't be a shock if I'm around long enough to see it where maybe 10, 15 years down the road, there's another company that has moved maybe right there into the forefront. You know, maybe there's someone in Asia. I'm fascinated that there's a franchise uh, based in, in the East in Asia that is bringing in fighters from, from China, from Mongolia, from Uzbekistan and India. Who knows if the great light heavyweight, the 205-pound champion of the future could be, you know, some kid from Mongolia. But, uh, uh, we always knew it would be big, and yet we, uh, we really got beat up pretty good with the politicians and the media. So by the time that I stepped away from it in January of 1998, quite frankly, I was uh, like a boxer that had been in a 15-round match and was kind of exhausted at the end. But I'm really thrilled and pleased, and the reason I'm still talking to someone like you today is that the Procedures did pick up the ball, and they ran with it. I think they've done a pretty good job of bringing it out into the mainstream, and I think that the prospects for the future are only going to be bigger. MMA as it was, MMA as it is, and MMA as it shall be. 
I think that's really well said. And you've always been very respectful in other interviews and in the book of how well the Fertitas have done uh, with your creation and where they've taken it. You know, it, speaking of the politics and everything of setting it up, obviously uh, huge, huge news recently here with the legalization of MMA in New York State. UFC's announced that they will be running a show this November. What were your thoughts as you kind of witnessed that from the sidelines of them finally getting it legalized in New York State? And what does that mean uh, to the promoters themselves, to the sport as a whole, and to the UFC? Well, you know, it was long overdue. Uh, I was the last one, uh, Semaphore and I, to do a legal show in New York, UFC 7. We got booted out, even after we had it sanctioned back in time for UFC 12 in Niagara Falls. So to see the recent um, New York State legislature finally sanction MMA is really an important milestone. Remember that the other 49 states had done so, all 10 provinces in Canada, so this was long overdue. And it was really kind of a shame, a crying shame, that it took that long for the New York uh, politicians and the media to finally embrace what everybody else had already done. But I think it's important in the sense that without that last roadblock, I think anyone and everyone can see that the road is clear into the future that the UFC and other MMA organizations are going to continue to grow this sport, and it can only be bigger tomorrow. Now, I, I ask that you put on your promoter's hat just uh, for a second here. If you were still in charge of the UFC and you were running that first show in New York, who would you go with as the main event, knowing what you know? Would you look to a Ronda Rousey, maybe returning to venture loss against Holly Holm? Would you look to have Conor McGregor bring his brand and his Irish fans into MSG? Or would you maybe look to uh, Chris Weidman or a Frankie Edgar, local guys, or a John Jones from upstate New York? Who would you, in your ideal world as a promoter run at the main event of UFC MSG? Gee, the main event is interesting because, you know, you mentioned John Jones and his New York roots, and I think, you know, as a promoter, I always knew the value. If we were down in Puerto Rico to bring in someone from that universe in Denver, bringing in a Pat Smith. So bringing in a John Jones is interesting and important. On the other hand, uh, is there anybody bigger today, really, quite frankly, than, than, than Conor McGregor? From from Ireland, uh, you gotta you gotta love this guy. He's got the the panache and the and the uh, the charisma of a Muhammad Ali. And I have said many times publicly that the sport has really benefited enormously from Ronda. Seeing her come back, uh, I think has everybody rubbing their hands together in anticipation and excitement. Uh, you know the Diaz people, the Diaz brothers. Uh, you know, picking it uh, just the main event would be tough. But quite frankly, I like the idea of, you know, John Jones having New York roots. That could be really an important one because, quite frankly, in the 205-pound class, this guy is the, is the class act. He really is. He may have some problems outside the octagon, but my God, as John McCarthy says, this guy is the prototype today of what, uh, you know, a light heavyweight MMA champion is all about. Absolutely. Now, you know, sticking with the whole political realm of things and what the UFC has gone through to get it legalized in New York, I do have to bring up, I don't know if you've read the news recently, but uh, Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen has been uh, talking about expanding the Ali Act into mixed martial arts, the famous Ali Act that oversees boxing. Do you have any thoughts on that, on what the ramifications would be if the Ali Act was expanded to include mixed martial arts? But that particular politician you recommended, I believe, is out of Oklahoma. I think right. he'd even done some MMA himself back in the day. That's right. And I, yeah, and I think that the interesting side of that is that this is a fairly complicated issue. Uh, the the act itself has um, been lauded maybe more as a as a value to fighters, per, you know, per, um, uh, pursuing civil suits against promoters and managers in the boxing world. It hasn't quite done all of what. Uh, the original uh, crafters and designers of the act had hoped. So the question is, is it really the legislation that would be needed and would be appropriate for the um, uh, the uh, sister and the combat sport of MMA? I think that this needs to be studied pretty carefully. You know, politicians love to see where uh, uh, some, uh, some energy might be, if there might be a parade forming and get in front of it. And I don't know whether or not this, uh, this politician from Muskogee is... Uh, you know, maybe looking for, you know, uh, a parade that he can lead. But I think this is something that has to be studied pretty carefully. Uh, you know, legislation, once it's passed, you have to live with it. And uh, there's a lot of issues here that have to be looked at carefully before you decide to leap. 
Yeah, that's that's definitely true. So just to kind of tie this all together, so we talked about the UFC becoming bigger and bigger, and you believe it's going to be bigger and bigger. We've talked about the legal side of things and, and, and how politicians can get in the way. What do you think is the biggest obstacle left uh, in front of the UFC and MMA world in getting it as popular as it possibly can be? Oh, to me, that's always the key issue. And quite frankly, I feel that given my background and whatever history I have, it all comes down to understanding that you're in the business of, of, of sports entertainment. And that means creating sports entertainment stars. What the UFC has done recently with people like Conor McGregor and, and Ronda Rousey is what the sport needs to do and continue to do. You know, in all fairness, um, you know, uh, there's only been a handful of people, maybe Bjorn Rebney, myself, Dana White, um, uh, that Japanese individual at Pride, who uh, really created... Yeah, Sasaki Kabara. So there's only been a handful of people that were really, you know, instrumental in creating new stars. That's the biggest job in growing a sport. If you look at the popularity and success of whether it's NASCAR or the NFL, it's all about creating icons that the public can identify with. Basketball and Michael Jordan, uh, you know, stock car racing, uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about here. It's really essential. And MMA must continue to do this at even a greater scale, looking for people from all over the world. That's why I thought the Connor is such an important addition to the to the uh, to the lexicon and the and the the reservoir of fighters out there who are representing the sport coming in from Ireland. I think you got to find these great talents wherever they are and bring them forward because when you truly create international stars, now you widen the sport truly. When the first time we find a a, a Japanese or a Mongolian fighter, uh, you know who, who who stuns the world, then MMA continues to grow even larger. I, I'm very pleased and thrilled that. If you look at the UFC Hall of Fame, five or six of the people that are in the hall were people that I booked and matched. Uh, I always felt that that was one of my key talents, was that I had a good eye for people who could fight, but also people who could inspire with their charisma the sort of audience identification and participation that's so crucial. That's what will grow MMA. More international stars, more and bigger. Yeah, I, that's so well said, and I think something that maybe gets even a little overlooked with the early days of the UFC was you guys did a really good job of creating stars. Obviously, with Hoyce uh, being the smaller guy that he was, I think you know most people have heard the story that I, I believe the family, the Gracies, and yourself wanted Hoyce to be the representative of jiu-jitsu because he was a smaller guy. Um, and actually, that, actually, I wanted Hickson. Did you really? I was gonna. I was actually yeah, yeah. just gonna ask that. So, how it's cool? In the book. <laughs> yeah, and is that a regret that you guys never ran Hickson in the early days of the UFC? And do you think you well, really could have built the promotion around him? Well, we easily could have because you know Hickson's really by by modern standards a middleweight, really a hundred eighty five pounder, and with great charisma. By the way, walking into a room, he dominates the place. Right. Uh, he's that kind of a guy. He's a cross between Antonio Banderas and Mike Tyson. Uh, so, you know, Hickson Gracie was a piece of work. On the other hand, I have to give Orion credit. He always felt that by bringing in his younger, uh, skinnier brother, uh, Hoyce, that this was more of a Bruce Lee ploy. It looked like this kid at 175 pounds up against the Kimo Leopoldo or Dan Severn was stunning. So I think we would have been successfully the way I used to maintain, and it's in the book, that whoever won the UFC was going to become a star because the event was a machine for creating stars, as it still is. But, um, uh, you know, quite frankly, it was always a thrill to be able to bring in people like Severin, Shamrock, uh, Don Fry, Mark Kerr, Mark Coleman, um, Olympic gold medalists like Mark Schultz and Kevin Jackson, um, Frank Shamrock. You know, and, and I was always very excited every time I was able to book my favorite fighter, uh, Randy the Natural Couture, who's become kind of a movie star since then. So, you know, the, 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 the UFC was a machine for creating stars. And uh, it continues to be, as it should. That's right. Well, Art, listen, we so appreciate the time. I feel like we could talk to you forever about the early days of the UFC and where the sport has come from and where it's going. So we'd love to have you on in the future. But as far as today goes, we just can't thank you enough for the time, and we really appreciate it. been a pleasure, and I would look forward to being back again. Thanks. So there you have it, Gumby. Art Davey. Feel like uh, when you talk to Art Davey, you're a part of history. Yeah, uh, I mean, he is 
the first name that should ever come up in discussions about the UFC. And it's nice to hear, too, that he has so much insight on a company that he's, for the most part, left behind. I mean, he's not involved in the, any operations in the UFC. So to see that he still follows it so closely, he still has all of these opinions about it, and, and he really has some really great insight on it, too. I love the piece about making more people international stars, and that's yeah. the way that UFC is going to get bigger. You need those big names. And that's why I think you, you get a guy like Yair Rodriguez for Mexico. You get a guy like Jake Matthews for Australia. Yeah, what, again, you know, you're back to your point about UFC 200 that you've mentioned a hundred times. If we were pushing these guys and putting them on the UFC 200 card, they would be tapping into those markets and making those markets even bigger. You it, know? It, yeah, it, you know, it is kind of weird. Here we are getting off on another UFC 200 tangent, but it's like Korean Superboy, Jake Matthews, Yair Rodriguez featured on UFC 200. You're bringing in Korea, Australia, and Mexico. And are all. No, two of those guys are the same weight class, and one's a different, right? Two 155ers and 145ers? Yeah, a Korean Superboy is 145. But yeah. the other two are 55ers. So, I mean, like, right there. Um, and, you know, if you took that Stevie Ray-Jake Matthews fight and just pushed Boom. it back, oh. I mean, S Stevie Ray's a, a Scottish guy, yeah. too. You would get Scotland in there. Yeah. Uh, all right, whatever. Let's not get, let's not get off on a bad tangent. Um, because we actually have something that's super exciting to talk about, and that is UFC Fight Night 87 from Rotterdam, the Netherlands. And I have to say, you know, when you get past your Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz super fights, when you get past your John Jones versus Daniel Cormier uh, grudge matches and all the hype that goes into those big fights, I love these fight nights, Gumby, because it's kind of nice to not have to deal with overhype. Yeah. And I know you're super excited because you have two of your all-time favorites in Arlovsky and Overeem yeah, and, in the main event. Yeah, and, and you know, th three or two more, actually it was going to be three more with Houlihan, but two more of my other favorite fighters of all time uh, just based on styling in the cage. You know, I'm not talking about like historical significance in Stefan Struve and Gunnar Nelson, uh, both on that card. And, you know, like I said, I loved watching Houlihan too, uh, you know, condolences out to him on a, a rough end to his career had but, to retire because of a blood disorder yeah right? that it, he's known he's had for a while so that's that was kind of a sad ending but that being said you know four fighters who i love to watch on the card really really exciting and i am correct in saying that overeem is is your guy you're a big overeem guy i, I like overeem but i'm a bigger arlovsky that's guy. right i knew yeah. you were a huge I, I'm a die hard arlovsky fan from like way way back in the day like UFC 40 versus Ian Freeman. The Paul Buntello years. Yeah, you know. when he, he beat up on Paul Buntello. I mean, like, yeah, I was at World Series of Fighting 5 when he beat Mike Kyle. Um, so, yeah, I, I've always loved the Pitbull. The Pitbull's a, a fun fighter for me to watch. All right. Well, uh, let's start with your man, the demolition man, Overeem. Overeem is on a three-fight win streak. After losing to Ben Rothwell uh, via TKO, he came back and knocked out Stefan Struve. He got a decision via unanimous decision over Hoy Nelson, as the Brazilians would say. If you remember in that fight, Gumby, Nelson kicked the shit out of Hoy Nelson's ribs. You could hear it on the broadcast. Yeah, thunderous kicks, man. And then, of course, this past December, uh, TKO over Junior Dos Santos. So three-fight win streak for the demolition man. On the other end of the spectrum, you have your guy, poster on your wall, Andre the Pitbull Arlovsky. He's coming off a loss to Stipe Miocic. But before that, he got a unanimous decision win over Frank Mir and, of course, knocked out Travis Brown in what was one of the fights of 2015, just a wild rock'em, sock'em, heavyweight slugfest. So, with all that being said, your thoughts on Overeem versus Arlovsky. So, Overeem versus Arlovsky is one of the worst fights I've ever even thought about betting. If you are a degenerate gambler, even if you are a degenerate gambler, stay away from this fight. I absolutely do not think that this is a fight that anybody out there can call with any kind of certainty. Um, that being said, if you put a gun to my head and you told me I had to make a pick here, I'm going with Arlovsky. I think he's been more consistent over the past few fights. And, of course, you said he just came off a loss. And, you know, Overeem's off of three straight wins. But when you talk about consistency, I mean, he got clipped against Stipe Miocic. Uh, looked a little shaky against Frank Mir because he was out of gas and Frank Mir was out of gas. It was a weird fight. But apart from that, he put together a really good resume for a bunch of fights in a row there. I mean, we've seen 
Overeem looked kind of crappy from time to time. I mean, like, look at the Ben Rothwell fight. The Ben Rothwell fight, he looked really, really shaky. He looked shaky in that losing streak he had. I mean, he beat Frank Nier in that losing streak, but to break up that losing streak, rather. But it wasn't pretty. I mean, like, you know, the last couple of fights have looked pretty good. But if you look at his recent history in the last, you know, three years or four years, it ain't good. Yeah, well, and let's backtrack there because I think it's an important point. You know, he beats Brock Lesnar, sends him packing back to the WWE. The demolition man is back. Everyone high on Overeem, buy stock now. And then he follows that up with a loss to Antonio Silva via KO. Yeah, and, and Bigfoot, I mean, like, Bigfoot's looked pretty bad as of late. Yeah, and then... Gets a second loss in a row to your boy Travis Brown. Um, but then he came back. That he, Travis Brown knockout, by the way, is insane. The front kick to the teeth. That's right. Oh, and, and to be fair to Overeem on that one, Overeem did have uh, Brown on wobbly legs for a little while until he started backing off and letting him throw those front kicks. But then he came back, got the decision win against Mir, where he still looked kind of lethargic, not great, then loses to Ben Rothwell via TKO. I remember thinking, you know, he was done at that point. I kind of wanted to see him get cut, but then... This is now uh, December of 2014. Uh, knocks out Stefan Struve. I think it was just like a ground and pound when Struve was trying to pull guard. Yep. Beats Roy Nelson. Kicked the shit out of his ribs. Uh, and then, obviously, the knockout over JDS. So now a three-fight win streak. So, so a little resurgence there. But, you know, in those, you know, the ground and pound on Struve. Struve, that was his first fight back from uh, when he had the heart condition. Um, and the other two, you know... One was was a lackluster performance followed by a TKO, and one was dominant over Roy Nelson. But he hasn't looked dominant in a, quite a few years. Whereas, you know, Arlovsky's shown dominant moments recently, and I, I think that that's the thing that makes me feel more confident about him is he's looked more consistent. Sure. And uh, if you want to know the uh, the odds as of right now on this, you can get Overeem at a, uh, call it about a minus 210, minus 215 favorite in most sports books, and Arlovsky hovering somewhere in the plus 170 dog Oh, range. so I, I, I just told, you know, degenerate gamblers out there not to bet this one. I didn't think either of those guys would be such an underdog, but at 2-1 to one odds... Uh, being as razor close of a fight as it is, I think that's value odd on uh, Arlovsky for sure. I agree with that. So if you're doing a parlay, feel free to throw Arlovsky in there and see if you can win big. Uh, we'll move on to the co-main event. And speaking of winning big, it's another fight between big fighters. You have Stefan, the skyscraper Struve versus Antonio Bigfoot Silva. Their nicknames imply that they are big people. Uh <laughs> Antonio Silva is coming off a, um, I guess you would call it a, eh, it wasn't a brutal TKO loss, but he got knocked out, uh, TKO versus Mark Hunt, that was at the Australia card, if you remember. Everyone thought it would be a barn burner of a rematch from their five-round war from a year or two prior. Um, before that, he beat Soa Palele, uh, Pale, Lay. Uh, and then lost to Frank Mir. That's a tough one for me. And then uh, lost to Frank Mir via KO. Uh, so he is one and two in his last three. And if you want to go back a little further, he's one and three in his last four because, of, co of course, Arlovsky knocked him out back in September of 2013. Struve, on the other hand, is coming off a loss to Jared Rochalt, who's recently been cut for being too boring of a fighter. But before that, he had a win over Antonio Rodrigo Nogueira at UFC 190. And before that, a loss to Alistair Overeem. So he is one and two in his last three. Uh, both guys need a win here. Your thoughts? So the the only types of guys who can beat Stefan Struve, and, and don't get me wrong, a lot of people fall into these categories, are people who can get him on the ground and hold him there. And people who are better at striking than him. And not that Stefan Struve is an amazing striker. I mean, obviously, he carries that Dutch kickboxer mentality to it, too. But he's not really great at keeping his distance. He's good enough to keep Bigfoot Silva away. And since Bigfoot Silva popped for, what was it? Was he TRT guy that he's no longer allowed to be on it? Was that he, sounds about right. I mean, he just, I have trouble keeping he track. Looks, he looks really skinny now and, like, awkwardly flabby. Um, 
I'm going to say Stefan Struve keeps the distance here. And Struve's got deceptive power. You know, there have been plenty of fights where this man's been tagged and he's been able to knock him out. And, you know, as of late, has Bigfoot Silva's chin looked all that good? No. I don't don't think so. So I'm going to say Struve by knockout. All right. Well, uh, in Vegas, you could get Struve as a minus 190 favorite. uh, Silva about a plus 150 to 160 dog. Um, we'll move on to the 170-pound offering, welterweight offering on the card, Gumby, and this is the fight I am most excited about because it features two of my favorite fighters. You have Albert Tumanov, who has looked nothing short of a straight murderer um, recently, going against Gunnar Nelson, who, of course, is out of... Um, a guy by the name of Connor McGregor's camp. Uh, you've probably heard Gunnar Nelson's name in the news recently, even if you aren't a huge MMA fan, because Connor McGregor was training in Gunnar Nelson's homeland of Iceland when he didn't want to come do that press conference for UFC 200. Nelson um, has not really looked great as of recent. Damian Maya uh, basically just jiu the shit out of him for unanimous decision win back in December. Uh, before that, though, he uh, got a submission over Brandon Thatch, which was really set up by a knockout punch. And going back to his first main event, he lost to Rick Story uh, via split decision. But the split decision does not do that fight justice. I think uh, most people had Rick Story win. Yeah, I had Rick Story in an easy easy call. Tumanov, on the other hand, as I mentioned before, has looked like a straight killer as of late. He is on a five-fight win streak. It has featured uh, two KOs, one TKO, a unanimous decision win over Nicholas Musoki, and a, a split decision win over Lorenz Larkin, who's no easy walk in the park for anyone, no easy night at the office. He is 5-1 and one in the UFC. Uh, he lost his debut fight and has now reeled off five wins in a row. Your thoughts? I, I mean, like, I, I mentioned at the, the top of this preview that I am a big Gunnar Nelson fan, but for me, I, I just think Tumanov is one of those guys who's a bad matchup for him. I mean, like, when you think about what Gunnar needs to do is Gunnar needs to do jiu-jitsu. Gunnar is better than everybody not named Damian Maia at 170 jiu-jitsu. Uh, mm-hmm. In the UFC, I do mean. Obviously, that, that doesn't extend to the grappling world. But he needs to be able to either get the guy down, which comes from either his wrestling, which isn't outstanding, the other guy shooting, or by him outstriking the guy and getting him to the ground like he did with Brandon Thatch. I don't see any of those as being logical ways to get to the ground on Tumanov. I don't think Tumanov's going to shoot on him and try to grapple him. I don't think he's strong enough to get Tumanov to the ground, and I don't think he's going to tag Tumanov. You know, I want to say that his jiu-jitsu can be a deciding factor here, but before it goes to the ground, it's on the feet. And Tumanov, like you said, has looked like a killer on the feet. Um, I don't know if he'll knock out Gunner because I don't think, you know, Gunner's the type who gets knocked out very easily because he's got good head movement. But, you know, he's going to have to outbox Tumanov, and, and that would be a pretty impressive feat to me. So I, I'm begrudgedly going to say Albert Tumanoff here by decision. I, I think that's a great breakdown, and I agree with every word of what you just said. Begrudgingly, I'm picking Tumanov. Um, I just don't think over the last, you know, other than the Thatch fight, and Thatch has not looked like a world beater by any means, I just don't think Gunners looked um, great here, you yeah. know, in the past year and a half. Yeah, and, and Thatch lost that one to C.R. Bahadur Zara uh, <laughs> recently, too, and, you know, CR was away for what three years before mm-hmm. that fight, and CR looked like he could do whatever he wanted with that. So yeah, you got to hold a little bit less stock in that win. Um, so Tumanoff right now, the minus one seventy favorite, Gunnar Nelson, the plus one fifty dog in most sports books. Um, now moving on in the main card, at least it's on the main card as of now. Uh, you never know how things can change as we get toward closer towards the fight. But you have um, Anna the Panda Elmos fighting Jermaine the Iron Lady Durandami. Did I say that right? Yeah, Durandami. Uh, Durandami is uh, one and no, I apologize. She is two and one in the UFC. Her one loss coming to Amanda Nunes, who of course is challenging Misha Tate for the bantamweight title this summer. Uh, she uh, Durandami just knocked out uh, Larissa. Pacheco, actually it was a TKO, that was back in March of 2015. So she's coming off a long layoff. Uh, Anna the Panda is coming off a win over 
Mara Romero Barella, and that was in a Denmark fighting promotion. So she is making her UFC debut. I dare you to tell me something about her. So I, I did see a little film on Elmos. Uh, she she is a high pressure fighter. She's only fought three times professionally. She's got three TKOs. She's fighting Jermaine Durandamine, uh, and Jermaine Durandamine is a really really long. Dutch kickboxer, okay, going back to the Dutch kickboxing well here. Um, she's fighting at home, and I feel like they, they tried to set her up with somebody uh, who she could showcase her skills for, you know, almost like a little hometown uh, gift here. But Elmos is actually, I think, kind of a bad matchup for her. Elmos is, is like I said, a high-pressure fighter. And what I've noticed about Durandamine is Durandamine looks good when she can dictate the distance. Um, and the way that Elmos kind of, like, comes in wildly i think she actually holds an advantage in this one if not by like uh you know a knockout here but by getting inside and just bugging uh durandamine until she's either tired or pressed up against the cage so um you know hard fight to call because she's only got three professional fights in her career um but i wouldn't feel bad about picking elmos here uh for those of you who don't know her uh in the the danish uh mma scene uh, she is an interesting play here, at least as, you know, probably somebody who's a significant underdog. Well, actually, not a lot of sports books are taking action on this right now, but the one that I'm showing here, they're uh, both uh, minus 115, so oh, it's like yeah. a pick So, so yeah. they probably have no clue, so they're just offering. But I bet you when you get closer to fight time, if you're one of those people who lays their wagers that morning, and this is a morning card, folks. This is a 10.30 a.m. start on the East Coast. Uh this is one of those fights where you might be able to get some pretty great odds right around fight time. All right. Um, so we will move on then. And you have uh, at 2.05, we have a, a prospect battle, I guess you could really call it. Uh, Nikita Krylov, who's, you know, we've cited Krylov and Misha Serkinov as two fighters to watch at 2.05. Krylov will be fighting uh, Fransamar Barroso. Nikita Krylov is coming on, uh, coming off a three-fight win streak since losing to OSP. Uh, that was when he held onto the Darce choke for too long, and OSP got that Von Flu choke back in March of 2014. Krylov has reeled off three wins in a row, including two submissions, a guillotine choke, a rear naked choke, and he also has a TKO win over Cody Donovan. Uh, Fransamar Barroso is coming off a two-fight win streak, uh, beat Ryan Jimmo by unanimous decision, beat Elvis Mutapchik via unanimous decision, and if you go back to March of 2014, lost to Hans Stringer via split decision. Uh, so in the UFC, though, overall, he is 3-1. and one. Your thoughts on this matchup at 205? So I, I think that part of what Hans Stringer exposed in Franz Barbarossa is that he is susceptible to people who can body him up because Jimmo is not have any interest in bodying anybody up. He's going to strike from distance. He's going to try to TKO you. Uh, you know, so I, I think that was a gift wrap fight for Barroso. Uh, Krylov, even though people have noticed a couple of his knockouts, and he does have some crazy good ones in the UFC, and even though he held on to that guillotine choke too long and got Von Flew choked, he has got a really good submission game, and when he gets in close, it's dangerous. And I think that with that pressure, it's not the kind of fight Barossa wants. Um, if Barossa can keep distance, I think this this could be a knockout for Barossa here. Um, but I like if Krylov can get inside. I like Krylov for the submission. All right, so we will look for Krylov via submission. And again, uh, when we are taping this, I just don't have enough odds to really give you anything. No one's really taking action on this. Yeah, and just that's yet. the thing with these international cards, too. You're just not going to get action until it gets a little bit closer to fight time. All right, and now rounding out the main card, you have uh, Ultimate Fighter veteran Heather Joe Clark fighting Carolina Cowell. Kowalczewicz. Uh You got to work on your Polish because, you know, I'm I'm half Polish here. So. I, I think I'm like a quarter Polish, too, so maybe oh, that's cool. even more of a disgrace. <laughs> um, 
Carolina is coming off of a uh, unanimous decision win over Randa Marcos. Uh, So she is 1-0 in the UFC. As a professional, she is 8-0, never been beaten. Uh, Heather Joe Clark is coming off of a win over Beck Rawlings via unanimous decision. Um, she also is one and zero in the UFC. So you have one and zero in the UFC versus one and zero in the UFC. Heather Joe Clark, of course, is seven and four in her uh, professional career. Your thoughts on this one? So I, I like the uh, the Polish fighter here, Kowalczyk. Her Kowalczyk over Heather Joe Clark, just based on who I've seen her be. I mean, Randa Marcos uh, was somebody who on the ultimate fighter looked like she could be the next champ. Like had good wrestling. Yeah. She had really good wrestling and she definitely got outworked. Uh, Heather Joe Clark, on the other hand, had beat Beck Rawlings, Beck Rawlings, you know, she's looked up and down in her career, depending on the fight you've seen Beck Rawlings in. She's looked like she was a killer at some times and she's looked, you know, pretty awful at other times. Um, that was fresh off the show. And, you know, Heather Joe Clark hasn't fought since then. You know, that was right after the show ended. And she has not fought in a long time, uh, whereas Carolina has fought very, very recently. So uh, I think that the recentness of the fight, in addition to, you know, the fact that she's just got better grappling, uh, I think you're going to see Carolina probably a decision here. Uh, Heather Joe Clark is a really game opponent. She is, she's she's a tough girl. All right. Um, so you like Carolina here all day. I like Carolina. Yep. Um, and that rounds out actually the main card on FS1. So we will move now to the FS1 prelims. All right, Gumby. Kicking off the FS1 prelims, you have Jan Cabral versus Reza Madadi at 155 pounds. Madadi is coming off a loss to Storm and Norman Park back in October of 2015. Before that, he beat Michael Johnson via Bravo choke and uh, lost to Christian Marcello going back to October of 2012. He is one and two in his last three. Hasn't really fought a lot, missed all of 2014. Um, Jan Cabral, on the other hand, is coming off a loss to Johnny Hollywood Case. Before that, he beat Nayuki Kotani and lost to Zach Cummins before that. So he is one and two in his last three. How do you see this one playing out? So this one's kind of hard to tell because Riza Madadi looked like a killer for a while. I mean, like, when you read off those results, right, he loses to Norman Park. That's recent. The other two are not recent. I mean... Beat Michael Johnson. Yeah, God bless anybody who can remember that Michael Johnson lost to Reza Madadi by Bravo Choke, of all things, too. Like, I mean, that's a really impressive win when you talk about it in 2016. What year did it happen in? That was April of 2013. April of 2013. It's over three years ago at this point. So, I mean, like... Can we hold any stock in that? And against Park, he got out-wrestled. I mean, Norman Park can out-wrestle a lot of people. Um, you know, n- no fault in that. Uh, Jan Cabral, you know, I've never been too high on Jan Cabral. Uh, I mean, specifically the Cummins loss made him look pretty bad. Um, not that Cummins can't make some people look bad. I mean, he's pretty damn good at that. Um, I- I'm going to go with Madadi, I think, just based on the fact that I know the skills are there. I don't know if he's still got him after all of that time off, but I know that they're there. Um, and I think if Madadi is at the top of his game, he's better than Cabral. I think that's a pretty good breakdown. Um, moving on on the FS1 prelims, you have uh, John Tuck. He will be fighting Nick Hine. Tuck is coming off of a win over Tae Hyung Bang, which took place uh, in the Philippines last May. It was a rear naked choke. Before that, he lost to Kevin Lee, your boy. Beat Jake Lindsay before that. So he's 2-1 and one in his last three. Also shares a loss uh, to Norman Park, um, as did our boy uh, Reza Madadi. Uh, in the UFC overall, uh, he is 3-2. and two. Nick Hine, on the other hand, Nick the Sergeant Hine, is coming off a win over Yusuke Kasuya. That was back in September of 2015 uh, at Fight Night 75 in Japan, Barnett versus Nelson. He beat Lukas Sajewski before that and lost to our boy James Vick, the Texecutioner. So he is 2-1 in his last three. In the UFC overall, he's 3-1 as he also has a win over Drew Dober. How do you see this fight at 155 pounds playing out? So 
Hein for me is a lot of one note. He he's a forward pressure guy. Uh, pretty decent takedowns. He's got a judo background. Um, he moves forward a lot, and he's got you know he's very muscular. If you look at him, he's a stockier, more muscular guy. John Tuck is very versatile. He's got the only he's the only person. Fun little fact here in UFC history to win via via back mounted liver kick. <laughs> he had a a rear seatbelt on a guy, and he started throwing liver kicks with his heel. Jake Lindsay. Until he got Jake Lindsay. I think they they might have called it a submission, but it could have been a TKO. They had a, it was a TKO parentheses submission to heel strikes. If you go by the Sure Dog records, yeah. So so like a a really really weird instance. But he's just got that weird versatile game where he can get you from anywhere. He can get you striking. He can get you on the ground. And if Hine grapples with him, Hine might win this one uh, with just pressure and staying out of trouble. But I think there are too many weapons there for Tuck, and it only takes getting caught in one of them for this to be over. And, and t- So I'm going to take Tuck on his versatility, and I'm not even going to wager a guess on how he's going to do it. All right. Because so- who the hell would have ever guessed heel strike from rear mount so just tuck via something cool always something cool all right we'll move on to a middleweight offering and you have magnus Sedenblad. uh he is out of sweden uh he will be fighting gareth soldier boy mckellen uh mcclellan is coming off of a win over bubba bush uh before that a loss uh so he is one and one in the ufc the loss was to bartos fabinski uh, Sedenblad is on a three-fight win streak. I wrote about him in my underrated win streaks article on MMA Manifesto. He's beat Jared Hammond via guillotine choke, beat Christoph Jocko via guillotine choke, and is coming off a unanimous decision win over Scott Askham. But here's the asterisk. That was back in October of 2014. Sedenblad has been on the bench for a while here. So how do you see this one going down? Another one where I worry about the guy being out too long. You know, I think Sedenblad, when when he's sharp, uh, probably has the tools to submit McClellan. Uh, but McClellan is gritty. Uh, if you remember in that Bubba Bush fight, it was a fight that I'm not 100% sure he was winning. And if you look at the timestamp, and I know you got it in front of you, I'm pretty sure you got the TKO with one second left or maybe two seconds left. Um, yep, there was uh, 4.58 in the third round, so two seconds left. Yeah, two seconds left in the fight. He is just one of those guys who has got the knockout power from start to finish. I watched a lot of them. Um, in, in his fights in South Africa, because you know EFC uh, is one of what I think is the most underrated promotions, and he's a South African guy, um, and you know he was the 185-pound champ for quite some time there. He's got knockout power. He's got some decent submission game, too, um, and with Sedenblad being out as long, I, I feel pretty comfortable picking McClellan here. I'm going to go with the soldier boy. Um, wow, okay. Because I, I do think Sedenblad's probably the better fighter on paper, but I, I see what you're saying. I, I do, yeah. too, but I think that rustiness plus a little bit of style Iowa matchup here too. Sedenblad doesn't look sharp on his feet when he boxes. I, I do also have to say, I think it's really cool. This obviously being a card taking place in the Netherlands. It's a lot of European fighters. You have a South African fighter. You have a couple of Brazilians. And then really it's like Chris Wade and Heather Joe Clark uh, are two of the only Americans on the card. But that's, it's, that's pretty, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Kind of crazy. Right. Um, all right. So now rounding this out on the FS1 prelims, the main event of the FS1 prelims, if you will, features a fighter. I am super excited excited to see he's out of strong island yet not a saralongo product which i've always kind of wondered about and i of course i'm talking about the 155 pounder chris wade he is 11 and 1 as a pro but in the ufc he is 4 and 0 gumby he has a guillotine win over kane karizasa uh two decision wins and a submission via rear naked choke over your boy, Mehdi Baghdad. That, of course, came in uh, January of this year at Fight Night 81, Boston, Dillashaw versus Cruz. Uh, Rustam Habilov, we're all familiar with at this point. Fun fighter to watch. He's coming off a win off of Norman Park, which was a unanimous decision. Lost to Adriano, Mar- Adriano Martins before that, and, of course, lost to Benson Henderson, which, was that Benson Henderson's last... Uh, oh, no, sorry. I was confusing him with someone else. Uh, scratch that. Uh, and then a win over Jorge Masvidal. So he's 2-2 two and two in his last four. Overall in the UFC, he is 4-2. and two. How do you see this one playing out? I, I know you said you're, you're pumped about Chris Wade, but I'm pumped to see Rustam Habilov back. Uh, 
he's just one of those guys who can take just about anybody down in the division. And he, I mean, he did take Benson Henderson down at least once, uh, to my memory. Uh, Chris Wade, he is four and zero, and I agree with you. He's a great prospect. But if we look at those four wins, what is, what would you say is the most meaningful name on that list? Uh, Medi Baghdad, not Medi Baghdad, maybe. Okay, yeah, no one. Maybe Medi Baghdad. Yeah, maybe yeah, maybe Medi Baghdad is the most meaningful name on there. And not that Medi Baghdad isn't a legit UFC fighter, but he's not what you would think of as being the best on a person's resume when they're 4 and 0. You know, like Hobbyloff has fought some of the very best at 155. I mean, he fought Benson Henderson and was able to take him down and you know, he, he has Absolutely outstanding takedowns. People forget how good his takedowns are. As long as he can get weighed down, he's going to suffocate him. He's going to lay on top of him. He's going to use ground and pound. But most of all, he's going to take him down again if he tries to get back up. And so you are going Hobbylov all day, all night, 365 days a year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And 13 takedowns. <laughs> Love it. All right, and we will move now to the Fight Pass prelims, which will more than likely kick off with... Uh, Oka Sasaki versus Willie Gates. This is at 125 pound flyweight. Uh, Willie Gates coming off a loss to Dustin Ortiz. Before that, he beat Daryl Montague via TKO and lost to John Moraga via rear naked choke. Before that, he is one and two in his last three and also one and two overall in the UFC. Oka is coming off a loss to Taylor Lepulis. Uh, it was a TKO loss in the second round. Lost to Leandro Isa before that via neck crank um, and beat Roland Delarm uh, via rear naked choke back in August of 2014. Do not hold uh, it against me that I cannot pronounce names. Uh, so he is one and two in the UFC overall. Uh, so Willie Gates versus Sasaki. Who you got? So uh, to, to be honest with you, these are two guys who I think are actually far better than their record shows. Willie Gates is a hell of a boxer. I mean, like. So he fought Dustin Ortiz, and Dustin Ortiz outgrappled him. You know, like, that's going to happen. Dustin Ortiz is a hell of a grappler. But he also beat up Daryl Montague, which is very, very impressive. You know, Roland DeLorme is a hell of a person to have on your resume as a submission win for Oka Sasaki. Roland DeLorme was around the UFC for a long time, and he had some really, really impressive matches in there, too. So Oka being a really, really good grappling artist, Gates being a hell of a boxer, um, this is a really stunned Fun, stylistic matchup, and I'm going to go with Olka on the submissions just because I think he can lure him to the ground at least once. All right, so you will be picking the Japanese fighter, Olka Sasaki. Uh, moving on in the Fight Pass prelims, we have another flyweight offering. You have Koji Horiguchi facing Neil Tutap Siri. Why is his nickname Tutap? I've always wondered. I I've got no idea. Like, he once got choked out but he tapped twice I, like where yeah, did that I, come I don't from? know maybe he's he's so good at submissions he makes you tap twice yeah, that, that could two, be two taps that's probably the best uh the best theory there um all right well neil two tap for whatever they call him that siri is coming off a win uh over john delos reyes uh guillotine choke uh, he lost to Luis Smoka before that and beat Chris Beal back in January of 2015. So he is 2-1 in his last three. Overall in the UFC, he is 3-2. Uh, and two. Koji Horiguchi, a one-time title challenger to Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson, is 2-1 and one in his last three. The one loss coming via armbar submission to Demetrius Johnson in a title fight back in April of 2015. Uh, he came back and beat Chico Camus via unanimous decision in September of 2015. Uh, your thoughts on Koji Horiguchi versus Neil Tutapseri? So you, you mentioned he's a title challenger, and I still think he's one of the best at 125. I think he's deserving of the title title challenger because... I mean, like, look, he got worked by Demetrius Johnson, but who at this point in the, the lightweight or the featherweight division hasn't looked like a bum against Demetrius Johnson? You know, Smolka, Smolka beating Siri is a bad loss. You know, like, not that Smolka, again, isn't one of the top in the division, but Horiguchi ran through everybody not named Mighty Mouse Johnson. Uh, and for me, until he shows that he's going to get beat by some of the lower tier guys, I consider him up there in that top five, top six, top seven area. Um, and I, I think he's going to run through Siri pretty easily. All right, so Hiraguchi all day for Gumby. Uh, and then moving to, I guess, what you would call the main event of the Fight Pass prelims, you have Leon Edwards fighting friend of the show, Dominic Shonuff, 
Waters, uh, the Greg Jackson, Mike Winklejohn product, Dominic Shownuff Waters, friend of the show, can't say it enough, is coming off a little bad luck here. Uh, two losses in a row, lost to Dung, Dung Hung Kim uh, and George Sullivan via unanimous decision. Dung Hung Kim was actually a TKO. Was uh, that, that stun gun Dung Hyung Kim or was that maestro Dong Hyung Kim? Th- this is Dong Young Kim, the stun gun. The stun gun. Okay, I forgot which one he had lost to. Stun gun is like the more impressive of the two. Maestro, uh, I think, is 0-1 in the UFC or maybe 1-1 in the UFC. So Dominic Waters, 0-2 in the UFC. Leon Edwards, on the other hand, uh, is coming off a loss to Kamaro Usman. Um, and before that, he beat Paul Polak uh, and beat Seth Pazinski via KO. Uh, in the UFC overall, he is two and two, uh, but two and one in his last three. And of course, coming off the loss, what do you think? Um, you, you know, this is a tough fight for me to call because Rocky Edwards has got uh, some pretty good power in his hands. I actually think Dom Waters is probably better all around, um, which is tough to say. If he keeps it on his feet. Um, I might worry about Rocky Edwards' hands a little bit, uh, but Waters has got pretty good reach. Waters is a pretty lanky guy, so you might see Waters keep his distance a little bit, and when it does get inside, hey, maybe he gets it to the ground. Um, Since it's such a back-and-forth fight, we're going to go with the friend of the show on this one. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, got to be a homer here. Professional broadcast journalism thrown to the wind on Top Turtle MMA. We just like people who come on the show. Yeah, we really don't give a fuck. All right, so that takes care of UFC Fight Night 89, Rotterdam. All right, Gumby. Well, another week in the books. We so appreciate everyone for tuning in. However it is, you get us in your ears. Tune in SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. Go ahead. Give us a rating. Shoot us an email with either uh, love or hate. We accept both. TopTurtleMMA at gmail.com. Give the show a follow if you're one of those people who likes the Twitter at Top Turtle MMA, and go on over to MMA-Manifesto, check out some of Gumby's writings, uh, follow him on Twitter, at Gumby Vreeland. Thank you once again for listening. We will choke you later.